0: York City. It's the Gary Knoll Show. And now your host, Gary Null.
1: Hi everyone. I'm Gary Null and I'd like to welcome you to this program. Today the latest on health and healing. New information about soy used in conventional medical treatment to help you if you have lung cancer. Then we're going to take a look at the latest lawsuit to challenge Monsanto on its GMO patents. And I'll give you the, the feedback on that. And then new information on toxic chemicals that we're consuming, and that's leading to all forms of problems for developing fetuses. And one of the reasons why I suggest that any woman who has a planned pregnancy should take at least a year or a year and a half to fully detoxify the body, you'll see why from this major study of 200 independent peer review studies, all showing that what a person breathes and eats, drinks, will directly impact that developing fetus. My guest in the second part of our program today, talking about globalization in a way that shows that losing jobs here in the United States step back. Why are we losing them? And who's behind that? Professor Adani Roddick. He is a Rafik Harari professor of international political economy at John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And he'll be here to talk about that issue. Our issue today will be based upon a commentary from Chris Hedges, this time This is what resistance looks like from CommonDreams.com. We have a lot to share with you. Let's begin. First, we are currently in the process of reviewing more than 6,000 studies on soy. We've isolated any studies that are supported by the soy industry and simply excluded them. We're only looking at those that have no outside bias. And then we're putting them into two categories, those that show that soy is beneficial, those that shows it is not. And this is in no small measure because there are those within the health field who claim that soy is bad, it's a poison, and my review of the scientific literature does not support that. To the contrary, we see right now, and I will give you the definitive report which we will publish with scientific references in lay language, that shows over 98% of all the studies soy is positive. This is just the latest. This is from the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, and it's the official monthly journal of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. Quote, this is from Mainstream Science, Science Daily. Soy increases radiation's ability to kill lung cancer cells. Quote, a component in soybeans increases radiation's ability to kill lung cancer cells. Now, what this means is that when a person has lung cancer and they're getting radiation therapy, uh, then they take the soy isoflavon, and that's what they've actually found, that the isoflavon, and I've suggested every woman in this audience take isoflavons because of its ability to help prevent breast cancer. So what they found is when you take the isoflavon and radiation together, that the isoflavone from soy increases the ability to kill the breast cancer cells, which is a good thing. So that's just one more study supporting soy. And by the way, the full uh, review will be, in its entirety, will be published. Now, starting about 10 years ago, there was a big push to get people who believe that they had any potential risk of cancer Uh, to have regular CAT scans, or if they've had any, like men who've had prostate cancer or testicular tumors um, treated, to get regular, what are called repeat surveillance CAT scans. And they were told that there would be no problem. Not true. The latest study from the University of California, Davis, uh, shows that when 7,301 participants in the Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results program underwent uh, the uh, removal of testicular tissue, and then they had regular CAT scans, they increased the risk of cancers. And this was just published in the peer-reviewed journal Cancer. So, what does this mean? It means, once again, where the initial treatment including with radiation or chemotherapy, may be beneficial. The secondary impact is two, five, ten years down the road, a person ends up with another cancer due to the treatment. We saw this when we started seeing all these teenagers who had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma being treated with um, chemotherapies and radiation. Years later, though they were able to have a higher survival rate using the orthodox therapy, in their 20s they came down with all forms of other cancers. So why not simply stop for a moment? And by the way, last evening when I finished a discussion in our office with a group of activists who are wanting to take on the subject of globalization and we had a meeting that was packed, one of the people in attendance was an board certified orthodox oncologist from a major teaching institution and who believes firmly in the alternative approach but is terrified of losing their position with the university if they even talk about alternative and I said have you spoken with all the people in the field who are medical doctors board certified like yourself who use alternative therapies and the person says no have you why don't you do this why don't you Since you have a database, why don't we review every major clinical trial in cancer using your approach or what is considered the orthodox approach for the last 30 years, and then see whether or not you have a statistically significant rate of curing people using your therapy. And she says, everyone in the field knows that the best you can do is about a 3.1% survival rate. And I said, well, that's not statistically significant, and the alternatives are much higher than that. She says, I know. I says, what you're saying is that your therapy doesn't work. She says, I know. I says, then what are you doing in the field? She said, a very secure paycheck with all the benefits. And at that point, there's nothing more I can say. I won't cross that line. And uh, to challenge a person, they've come to those views on their own. But at least she was honest in saying she's looked at the scientific literature and the orthodox therapies for almost all cancers simply don't work. For 80% of cancers, it simply doesn't work. The actual science, their science, from their peer-reviewed journals, from over 3,200 of their studies, show their therapies don't work. Why is this never discussed anywhere in the media? Not on the left, not on the right, nowhere. Why isn't this being talked about, to redirect the funding, to redirect the research, the clinical trials. Because someone would have to, A, acknowledge they've been killing people by the millions, B, that they would stop their funding, just like this person who was here in our office yesterday, and C, paradigms don't change. So, next up, let's say you have dementia or know someone who has dementia, beginning of dementia, memory loss. And it always gets worse. What can you do to help that person? This is interesting. This was an article I read this morning from the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, funded by the National Institutes of Aging. It says dancing. That's right. Dancing is one of what they're calling holistic way of dealing with lowering body weight, lowering blood pressure, lowering cholesterol, lowering your blood sugar level, and in de- and decreasing um, the harmful effects of dementia. Because they're talking about how dancing is so important. This was researched at the University of Missouri. That dance-based therapy helped them with their gait and balance and other things. They had were less likely to fall and have injuries. And uh, so that's important because that's something people can do. And those are therapies that are easy and inexpensive. So we should be encouraging people to go into dance programs. And it doesn't matter what kind of dance programs, just being able to move your body. And uh, just remember, when you're dancing, you're really using your cerebral cortex and hippocampus. And these are the parts of the brain that are remarkable for their fluidity. And they rewire themselves based upon how you're using it. So, you can literally help uh, have greater cognitive power when you have complex dance moves. And because this is affecting your neuronal synopsis, and that helps keep dementia and mind loss at bay. For those of you who have Crohn's disease, according to the um, Journal of Applied and Environmental Microbiology, probiotics and many people in this audience take probiotics Preventively daily, is a very good therapy. Now, this comes from Science Daily, and it says the following, quote, New research suggests that infection with a probiotic strain of E. coli bacteria could help treat and reduce negative effects of another E. coli infection that is associated with Crohn's disease. So, probiotic bacteria can help, and we have found that by helping individuals rebalance their intestine makes a big difference. And for those of you who've been wondering, should I use maple syrup or not? One of the best sugars to use if you want something that's sweet but does not raise your blood sugar that has a low glycemic impact is natural palm sugar or coconut palm sugar. Now there's something else you can use, maple syrup why, according to the Journal of Functional Foods, they did some scientific analysis on what was in maple syrup that made it have some special qualities in the body, and they found a new compound, a phenolic compound, they're calling it quibacol Q-U-E-B-E-C-O-L, and that's giving it a lot of its benefits. This was research done at the University of Rhode Island, and here's what they say. "...published scientific studies have shown that maple syrup extracts have antioxidants, anti-mutagenic, and human cancer cell anti-proliferative properties. To this end, our laboratory has embarked on a collaborative project to comprehensively identify the chemical constituents in maple syrup, and they've gone a long way in doing that. So, who knew that having maple syrup could help prevent cancer?" could help stop a lot of the genes from mutating, and could help protect your cells with antioxidant activity. That's good. For those of you who are wondering, you've heard about the white bean extract helping with weight management. Does it really work? Yes, it does. There's a new research, and it says, quote, White bean extract that inhibits the action of enzyme alpha amylase is effective for glucose control and weight management is according to review of the scientific literature. So that was published in Nutrition Research. So if you're using the white bean extract for weight management, there's good science to back it up. And finally, if you want to have healthier blood vessels, that means good healthy epithelium. Use vitamin D. Where does this come from? Alternative health? No. This comes from Science Daily. It's published through research from Emory University School of Medicine and at, presented at the American College of Cardiology in New Orleans. A lack of vitamin D, even in generally healthy people, is linked with stiffer arteries and an inability of blood vessels to relax, and that can lead to heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and higher blood pressure. So by taking vitamin D... I'm going to suggest at one to 2,000 units a day. Then you're able to have softer veins, more pliable, where the blood goes through easier and makes your whole body healthier. I'm Gary Null. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. <laughs> Does she love me with all her heart? Should I worry when we're apart? It's a lover's question I'd like to know. Does she? Nice to have you with us, everyone. Now for the latest on this Monsanto lawsuit that many, many people have been emailing and asking about. And I'll share something from Randy Ananda from Global Research. Quote, A landmark lawsuit filed last week in U.S. federal court seeks to invalidate Monsanto's patents on genetically modified seeds and to prohibit the company from suing those whose crops become genetically contaminated. Now what we know is that there are over 270,000 people from 60 organic and sustainable businesses and trade associations, including people like myself, certified organic farmers, and the organic seed growers, and and who are against Monsanto. And uh, and here's what they quote: as Justice Story wrote in 1817, to be patentable, an invention must not be injurious to the well-being, good policy, or sound morals of society, notes the uh, complaint in its opening paragraph, citing Lowell versus Lewis. The suit points to studies. Now, this is what's important for all the people in this audience to understand, that Monsanto's Roundup herbicide harms human placental tissue. It can create lymphomas, myelomas, animal miscarriages and other impacts on human health. Now the plaintiffs condemn Monsanto for prohibiting independent research on its transgenic seeds and for its successful lobby efforts to ban genetically modified food labeling. And um, and it raises also the specter of allergic reactions to genetically modified foods, proof of which is hidden by lack of labeling. Because right now, you can go into any store, and you can buy corn and soy and milk and beef, and you don't know if it's genetically engineered at all. That's the power they're lobbying. And the suit also confronts the propaganda that transgenic seeds improve yield. They do not reduce pesticide use. They increase it. And citing reports on failure to yield and increase pesticide use. And the complaint mentions a lawsuit by West Virginia after several studies contradicted yield results claimed by Monsanto's ads. And it notes the growth of uh, in glyphosate-resistant superweeds. This means, uh, should the court agree, that all transgenic seeds fail the test of patent law. The suit has the potential to reverse patent approval on all biotech seeds that would impact BSF, Bayer, DuPont, Dow, uh, Syngenta, and other genetic uh, companies, But what makes Monsanto different is that it it's an extremely aggressive company. It owns about 90% of all soybeans, corn, cottons, sugar beets, and canola grown in the United States um, from genetic seeds. And through its monopoly, Monsanto has increased the cost. In the past decade alone, corn seed prices have increased 135% and soy 108%. And, um, and so it's... Uh, it's good that finally that Monsanto has to go to court because under this will come discovery and then we'll see all those people in the White House and Congress all the lobbyists all the people that they hired to get their way and boy have had they had their way. So I'm looking forward to doing a whole 1-hour special on this. Now just as interesting we're going to be having a scientist on our program who Dr. Huber, who is a a emeritus professor. And here's one of the pushbacks by the pro uh, genetic engineering voices. This is from Michael Crum of Associated Press. Quote The widespread internet posting of a letter by a retired Purdue University researcher who says he has linked genetic modified corn, soybeans to crop disease and abortions and infertility in livestock has raised concern among scientists that the public will believe. His unsupported claim is true. The letter to Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack has been posted on dozens of websites ranging from the Huffington Post to obscure gardening and food blogs generating discussing, discussions on message boards about the controversial topic. Um, anyhow, he goes on to really say that where's the proof as if there is no proof. And we can see this all the time. Well, we will be presenting the proof with the scientists in question on this program in a one-hour special on the truth behind genetic engineering and the proof behind the science about why it is dangerous all that's coming up and one more point here concerning those who uh, ask a question And some people said why would you want women who want to have a pregnancy not to be able to have an immediate pregnancy and my, my answer is simple it's for the protection of the, the baby because we now have absolute proof that whatever the mother was consuming and the father as well will av- adversely affect his sperm and one defect of sperm that ends up fertilizing with the egg ends up causing a defect. It could be a learning defect, of a, 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 a some form of attention defect, it could be a serious defect, it could end up in a miscarriage. And for the mother, everything in her body, her level of heavy metals, lead, cadmium, mercury, all of that can pass through the placenta into the developing fetus, causing some very serious adverse effects. So just on a purely um, humanistic, spiritual level, wouldn't you want to bring a child into the world where it has every opportunity to thrive and survive at a biochemical level? So here is the latest in support of my contention that planned pregnancies should be planned with maybe a year to a year and a half, because that's how long it'll take realistically to detoxify your body of the very pollutants that will adversely affect your. It's not will they affect, absolutely everything that's toxic in your body will affect your developing fetus. This is the latest. New report, toxic chemicals and consumer products increasingly linked to public health problems. Um, The new report shows that serious health problems including premature birth, learning disabilities, behavioral disorders, asthma and allergies, early puberty, obesity, diabetes, reduced fertility, and some forms of cancer are increasingly linked with exposure to chemicals that can interfere with the process of growth and development according to... This latest research from the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. Quote The report reviews data from 200 different peer reviewed scientific papers and detailing the effects that toxic chemicals can have on the development of children and fetuses clear through to adulthood. Over and over again, new toxic chemical compounds have been introduced into commerce with their health effects discovered only later. The report also points out the barriers built into the U.S. chemical regulatory system that prevents meaningful action to protect the public. Quote, From before they are born, kids are exposed repeatedly to toxic chemicals, in the toys they play with, the carpets they learn to crawl on, and the food they eat. Our homes should not be hazardous to our health. We need common-sense laws that require thorough testing before harmful products and toxic chemicals are on the market instead of waiting until the evidence is overwhelming that they are accumulating at toxic levels in our bodies. So that just gives you the latest on that. And by the way, one other thing on our nuclear level, more than 1 in 10 nuclear power plants at risk from earthquakes Now, this is from Jonathan Owen, A Common Dreams, and it says, Scores of nuclear power plants worldwide are at risk from tsunamis and earthquakes similar to the natural disasters that crippled Japan's reactors. Many at-risk plants are in countries less able to cope with disaster than Japan. 76 operating power plants, these are nuclear power plants, in Japan, Taiwan, China, South Korea, India, Pakistan, and the United States are located in areas close to coastlines deemed vulnerable to tsunamis. Of the 442 nuclear power stations globally, more than 1 in 10 are situated in places deemed to be at high or extreme high risk of earthquakes. So... One more reason why all of us should be concerned about the plants, including Indian Point, and what we can do to help close those plants down. At least start with those that are on fault lines or at high risk of having a similar adverse effect as the one in Japan. Gary Nall, back in a moment with our commentary. Please stay with us.
0: train coming down the track Don't
1: please, don't, don't leave me Don't leave me in misery I'm Gary Nall. Our guest in about 15 minutes from now will be Professor Danny Erotic talking about globalization. And in that discussion, I will be laying out why I believe that it's not merely front groups. whether well, there's the Bilderberg, Council on Foreign Relations, the DEVOS. These are just front groups with no... Uh, legal right to determine policy, but it's governments that impact our decisions of where jobs go. We'll have that discussion. Now we're going to the part of our program on issues, and after this commentary, I'd like for you to call in and share your points of view. Also, um, first, uh, just a, a few thank yous for all the students and the faculty and the parents of the faculty this past Saturday that filled that auditorium out at uh, the Roslyn High School uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to be there and to share um, all that we can do. And even that one-week experiment that they're doing on eliminating some junk food to see how much better their focus, energy levels, and attention in classes. It's always nice when a principal and the teachers and parents get together and say, we want good change. Now, to this commentary, which, I, by the way, I will mention a event in here from Chris Hedges that I'll be attending and filming as part of our a Poverty Inc. documentary which is also in the process of being done and in fact I'll be screening at a film festival this Saturday in Connecticut um, we will not halt the laying off of teachers and other public employees the slashing of unemployment benefits the closing of public libraries the reduction of student loans the foreclosures, the gutting of public education and early childhood programs, or the dismantling of basic social services such as heating assistance for the elderly, until we start carrying out sustained acts of civil disobedience against the financial institutions responsible for our debacle. The banks and Wall Street, which have exerted the corporate state to serve their interest at our expense, caused the financial crisis. The bankers and their lobbyists crafted tax havens that account for up to one trillion dollars in tax revenue lost every decade. They rewrote tax laws so the nation's most profitable corporations, including Bank of America, could avoid paying any federal taxes. They engaged in massive fraud and deception that wiped out an estimated $40 trillion in global wealth. The banks are the ones that should be made to pay for the financial collapse, not us. And for this reason, on April 15th at 11 a.m., I will join protesters in Union Square New York to confront the Bank of America. Now, the economy is controlled by a handful of economic elites. The necessities of most Americans are no longer being met. The only way to change this is to shift the power to a culture of resistance. This will be the first in a series of events that will organize people to control their economic and political life. That's according to Kevin Zeiss, Director of Prosperity Agenda. Now, if you're among the one in six workers in this country who does not have a job if you're among the some six million who have lost their homes to repossessions, if you're among the many hundreds of thousands of people who went bankrupt last year because they could not pay their medical bills, or if you have simply had enough of the current kleptocracy, then this is important that you do something constructive. And why? Why Bank America? Well, it's one of the major institutions responsible for the theft of roughly $17 trillion in wages, savings, and retirement benefits taken from ordinary citizens. And, uh, and people have to know how this was done. The 10 major banks, which control 60% of the economy, determine how our legislative bills are written, how our courts rule, how we frame our public debates on the airwaves, who's elected to office, and how we are governed. The phrase, consent of the governed, has been turned by our two major political parties into a cruel joke. There is no way to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs. The faster these banks and huge corporations are broken up and regulated, the sooner we become free. Bank of America is one of the worst. It did not pay any federal taxes last year or the year before. It is currently one of the most aggressive banks in seizing people's homes, at times using private, rough-tough security teams to carry out brutal home invasions to toss poor families into the street. The bank refuses to lend small business people and consumers the billions in government money it was handed. It is returned with a vengeance to the flagrant criminal activity and speculation that created the meltdown behavior made possible because the government refused to institute any effective sanctions or control from regulators and legislators or the courts. Bank of America, like most of the banks that peddled garbage to small shareholders, routinely hit its massive losses through a creative accounting device it called repurchase agreements. It used these repros during the financial collapse to temporarily erase losses from the books by transferring toxic debt to dummy firms before public filings had to be made, it called Fraud and Bank of America is very good at it. Well, civil disobedience, such as that described in uh, a moment ago, in, in Union Square coming up, is the only tool we have left. A fourth of the country's largest corporations, including General Electric, Exxon, Mobil, and Bank of America, paid no federal income tax this past year. But at the same time, these corporations operate as if they have a divine right to hundreds of billions in taxpayer subsidies. Bank of America was handed $45 billion, that is with a B billion, in federal bailout funds. Bank of America takes this money, money you and I paid in taxes, and hides it along with its profits in some 115 offshore accounts to avoid paying taxes. One assumes the bank's legions of accountants are busy making sure the corporations will pay no federal taxes again this year. Imagine if you or I tried that. If Bank of America paid their fair share of taxes, planned cuts of $1.7 billion in early childhood education, including Head Start Title I, would not be needed. The big banks and corporations are parasites. They greedily devour the entrails of the nation in a quest for profit, thrusting us all into serfdom and polluting and poisoning the an ecosystem that sustains the human species. They have gobbled up more than a trillion dollars from the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve and created tiny enclaves of wealthy and privileged individuals where corporate managers replicate the decadence of the Forbidden City in Versailles. Those outside the gates, however, struggle to find work and watch helplessly as food and commodity prices rocket upwards. We don't need leaders. We don't need directives from above. We don't need formal organizations. We don't need waste of our time appealing to the Democratic Party or writing letters to the editor. We don't need more diatribes on the internet. We need to physically get into the public square and create a mass movement. like to welcome you. Right now, we're going to take a few calls before we go to our guest who is standing by. This is the area of our program on issues, and I'd like to get your feedback. The feedback is, why aren't Americans protesting, at the very least, taking their money out of Bank America and some of these major corporations that have so much impact upon the rest of our lives? Let's say hello to John from New York City. Like to hear from John. John, you're on the air. Hi, John. You're on the air.
0: Uh, yeah, hi. Just wanted to say that um, I, you know, listening to
1: some of the things you're saying, and I still understand the anxiety and, and anger that a lot of people have about banks. But I think some of the things that you're said are, you know, while in
0: one one way they might be true, they, they don't really they obfuscate what actually is going on. Like life is a lot more complicated than the one line of they didn't pay taxes. If in any corporation in this in this country, if you lose money, you can carry your loss forward to the next year. So that's what happened with a lot of these banks. They didn't make money. They lost a ton of money.
1: Okay, and let's just accept that. Okay, fair enough. Then if they lost money, then why did Bank America and Citibank that also posted losses and Wells Fargo that posted losses, why did they give um, their clients, uh, the, the people within their bank, Uh, the managers and the people running their departments, billions of dollars in bonuses. And also, when they were getting loans, loans guaranteed by the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, and and hence the American public, why didn't they do what they were told to do and promised to do, turn around and put that money back into communities, into small businesses, or uh, bring down the cost of a mortgage? If a bank is holding a mortgage, and if that mortgage, let's say, is $300,000, and now the market value is $200,000. And if that person got the mortgage on in adjustable interest, which was 4%, and now it's 8%, and hence the person says, I can't afford the interest payments. Wouldn't you think that the bank would see that it's in its own best interest not to have all those foreclosures to lower the cost of that mortgage down to the market value to help a person stay in there, to make some adjustments? It chose not to do that. And as a result, 5.8 million Americans or homes were foreclosed on, and this will be the record year that we're in now, and that means four people per home were about 22 million Americans. So, yes, corporations have every right to carry uh, losses forward, but... What if they had to pay one flat income tax without being able to deduct it or hide it offshores? So, yes, it is more complicated, but I think it's only more complicated because the banks don't want to be honest and show us the true nature of their toxic assets and how much position they had in credit default swap or derivative positions. And yet they still get money at zero interest at the window of the Federal Reserve. You and I can't do that. Small businesses can't do that. And look at the percentage of profit they make when they get their uh, interest-free loans, and yet look at what they're charging you if you're late. Do you think Bank of America is going to be understanding if you have a debit card as a student in California, and you miss a payment, and suddenly that can go to 20 to 30%? Do they have compassion for that person? Those are also worth thinking about. Appreciate your call. Thank you. Let's say hello to Anthony from New York. Hi, Anthony.
0: Hey Gary, my name. Uh, I'm from New Jersey, actually, Jersey City. Hi. I, um, I just, um, you know, with with the whole thing of people hearing that they should remove funds from banks because banks are actually stealing from us, it's just, it's funny that even though you tell them it's better, I, I actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I do the old grandma thing. I hide my money, not under the mattress, but it's, you know, on my person. But, you know, you tell people that, and right away the first thing is is the negative. You know, oh, my God, what if there's a fire or if your house gets robbed? Even those things that probably never, ever happened to you in your family's history.
1: Well, Anthony, I've got to go to my guest. I appreciate your thought. Why don't we look at it this way? No one is suggesting that we take money out of all the banks. What I'm suggesting is that you look at the history of the bank whether it's a save, small savings loan, whether it's solvent, whether it's engaged in a lot of the risky uh, ventures, or whether it's uh, tried to honor uh, good banking practices and whether it's been supportive of people who can qualify for loans, giving them those loans and being reasonable and responsible with the people that it knows. Or is it a bank that uh, uh, the people, the investors really secondary in importance to their capacity to generate profits off schemes that do not increase the uh, workforce or uh, jobs in different sectors within our society. So it's doing a little homework upon the nature of where you place your funds and that would also extend to all of our other investments. There was a time when on this program we did an original report to show that many of the unions had pensions, uh, a trust that were investing in apartheid uh, um, government of South Africa and businesses doing business with the apartheid government And I ask a question, if you knew that your money was being invested for your retirement and businesses doing business that uh, supported slavery in South Africa and racist views, would you want that money moved to a different uh, business? And the answer was yes. So it's not to say we shouldn't have trusts or retirement funds. It's just being responsible as to where they are invested. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your call, Anthony. Let's go to my guest, who I was just told is now on the line. I gave his introduction and his bio and background at the beginning of this discussion. So I'll simply say, welcome to our program, Dr. Roddy. Uh,
0: Nice to be with you.
1: I'd like for you, if you would, please, to take us through a basic understanding of globalization. Um, if we went back to Brenton Woods, the first real move to establish a global governance system comprised of the UN, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, and, and the World Trade Organization only coming into existence later on, fundamentally with globalization, these institutions went well beyond their mandates of touting the interest of a among the most developed nations who basically called the shots. So we need to know what what is globalization today, How can we see it? We hear the term. How can the average person understand what globalization really means to them? And should they be concerned about what globalization is and how it's manifesting? Because could it reach into their communities and affect them?
0: Well, globalization is 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 uh, is around us, and we're experiencing in all kinds of ways. From uh, you just uh, uh, walk into uh, any store, and, and you'll see goods made from China; it's dominating uh, the store, and and it's obviously reaching into communities because it has uh, huge effects in uh, in the kinds of uh, investment decisions that um, um, multinational companies are making. I mean, we've learned uh, globalization is really is really just the extent of the market system to to the global level. And and one thing that we've learned about uh, markets is that they require rules uh, for them to work well. And and we're just uh, sort of trying to figure out what those rules are for for global markets. Uh, Whenever we've had global markets historically, we have had uh, rules of one kind or another. It used to be in the 17th, 18th, 19th century that those rules would be imposed by you know either chartered trading monopolies or by you know british imperialism um, and then you know until you mentioned the Bretton Woods era when we got to the immediate post war period, we had the bright idea, which was a very good idea that rather than uh, outsourcing these rules to private entities or to imperial powers, we should actually Create some um, multilateral organizations based on uh, transparency and, and non-discrimination and, and, and uh, legal rules that would uh, um, um, that would create some of those rules. And actually, the rules that the um, Bretton Woods organizations uh, uh, implemented in the first few decades after the Second World War. Were not bad rules because they left a lot of room for national policymakers to. Um, run their economies pretty much freely without um, imposition from from these external rules. It's really only when we get to the 1980s with this sort of new market fundamentalism, new understanding of globalization, where instead of asking what global markets could do for us, we began to ask, what should we be doing for global markets in order to compete, that things began, uh, started to go haywire. And I think we we pushed way too far, something that had started out actually with uh, good intentions.
1: I appreciate that oversight. Thank you. I have a a question that focuses on the U.S. since we are certainly one of the dominant uh, global governance um, groups and uh, appointing executive officers and the power of the U.S. vote and our vote in favor or disfavor of any agenda are critical for anything being implemented in international and trade laws. Not exclusively, but certainly we do have influence. And at the same time, the U.S.'s hubris in international affairs compartmentalizes itself as one of the leading role models in the world. The light um, on the hill, as it were, for other nations. Yet anyone can look at the statistics on income gap, health care, education, even death rates, and know that the United States is far from being exemplar to imitate and what role do you see globalization as it is currently mandated having played in the social and economic condition of the United States today and then do you feel the US has a right to impose its will through these global institutions upon others and one example that comes to mind is the imposing of meat and dairy raised foods with growth hormones on Europe which Europe wants to ban for health reasons and the same can be said for GMO crop which only corporate-funded research claims is safe and actually increases yields, while almost all independent science concludes the contrary.
0: I mean responding to your specific questions first uh, I actually do think that those are areas where where we've gone overboard um, and I do think uh, the United, the European Union or for that matter, matter any other country ought to be free to to determine its own food safety rules and its own rules with respect to GMOs or, or beef hormone and I think uh, the, those cases that you cited are, are precisely illustrations of that, um, that I give in my book of, of how uh, we've gone to an overly expansive concept of, of global rules um, and therefore global institutions like the World Trade Organization are, are facing a true legitimacy crisis uh, as a result. Um, you know, I don't see any reason why we should treat any differently the case of, for example, when the United States impose, uh, imports uh, toys from China that contain um, levels of lead that uh, the United States judges uh, to be unsafe, um, then it's perfectly okay for the United States to say, no, we are not going to import those toys. If you want to uh, play in our market, you have to play by our rules. And I think uh, in general, countries ought to be um, free to set their own rules, whether those are, you know, food safety rules or they are other um, uh, consumer safety uh, rules, or in fact, whether it's uh, their own standards with respect to bank regulation, and they ought to be free to settle those. And I think too often we, partly because uh, international firms or banks push it in that direction, we try to harmonize those uh, our rules at some global level, or through some global agreement, and uh, you know either uh, we succeed, in which we run into a legitimacy, legitimacy problem because those rules don't satisfy uh, ordinary people, or we end up with um, uh, sort of the lowest common denominator, so that the rules are, are really quite inadequate. I don't think I think the U.S. Uh, is really losing uh, very much, um... sort of you know any appeal it had as as a uh, as a role model um i think these days country people are much more likely to uh, to look towards china but that i think is misleading too i think every decade we've had a different idea of what the ideal system was uh you'll remember in the 1980s everybody in the united states was looking at japan as as uh, the model to emulate and and uh, you know we know what a passing phase that was I think the reality is that uh, sort of mixed economies uh, that that are responsive to the needs of the average person can be constructed in a number of different ways. I mean, I think, you know, sort of we don't have a single model of how to run an economy, certainly not a single social model. And I think we're better off in a world where different countries are free to experiment and arrive at their own mixed social economic models than saying that there is just one uh, ideal type that uh, everybody should adopt.
1: I would absolutely agree with that. I have a concern. I do not believe that the World Trade Organization is is transparent, uh, who the powers are behind it, or their officers, where they come from. And just as one example, I have many uh, in the case of a, um, a product from, I believe it was Canada, uh, Canada that was going into California, and California's... Uh, environmental protection, uh, state environmental protection agency, didn't want this particular chemical used because it was a polluting and not a safe chemical. And the World Trade Organization, when this was brought to their attention, found in favor of the company and its lost profits and California was faced with either paying millions upon millions of dollars that they did not have or allowing this toxic product to be used. And, And this is not the only example of that. So at the end of the day, we're all assuming that there is a completely objective, fair, and, and, uh, and benevolent organization that is looking after the best interest of truth. I have not seen that to be the case with the World uh, Trade Organization. Your thoughts, please?
0: I, I largely agree with you. I mean, I think uh, many economists and, and technocrats are under the illusion that the World Trade Organization is, is operates like uh, some kind of a platonic guardian out there looking for the general good. Uh, when we know that that the that the rules that uh, it implements are are largely the product of uh, uh, the relative strength of lobbying by different groups. Um, and And then so uh, it is as much a political instrument as as any other set of of of, of policies are and And because it's an international agreement, those groups that uh, are are much more able to operate at the global level tend to um, have greater leverage. So it is an asymmetric set of rules. Now, I, I do think that international organizations like uh, the World Trade Organization could have a an important role to play. Um, but I think the way we should think about that, what that role is, is as uh, as, as uh, enabling national democracies to operate uh, in a more open, transparent, deliberative manner. So I'm all for uh, international rules that says, look, if you're going to have this these set of tariffs, if you're going to have these kinds of regulations, and they have adverse effects on your trade partners. Uh, Let's ensure that the mechanisms through which you arrive at those policies, tariffs or regulations, are open, are uh, um, evidence-based, bring in all the relevant stakeholders into the decision-making process. And international rules can make our democracies work better in that sense, in in terms of, of, of helping ensure that these are, That the rules that we get are are broadly reflective of what society demands as opposed to simply uh, what particular lobbying groups want. Because certainly we can get those outcomes too. But I think where they overreach is when you have international rules that actually set uh, certain standards or um, actually uh, decide... Um, substantively uh, as to whether a particular standard is the right one or not. And I think uh, that's when uh, things start going wrong.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your views, um, especially at a time when globalization is a reality, though many of us believe that it's it's uh, with the International Monetary Funds at structural adjustments and the World Bank uh, that they have done a great deal of harm to individual nations, especially the poor and those who did not receive the benefit of loans given to the country, but they were responsible for programs taken away that were helping them. And I'm very concerned. I'm also concerned, and it's just a parting thought, I'm concerned about some of the biases we have seen where the World Trade Organization has supported the rights of genetically engineered companies to sell what they're uh, telling us are safe uh, products when the body of science certainly is more than adequate to offer legitimate challenge because what we don't know is who's behind the scenes really making the final decisions, whether these are objective and honest decisions or in any way influence, especially after I just read the transcript this morning of Alan Greenspan under o testimony before Congress where he was shocked, shocked that banks, given all this freedom, Uh, to make whatever kind of gambles and and risks it wanted would do anything that would be inappropriate or unethical or uh, immoral. Um, Well, if he was shocked that the banks were not doing what they should have done in a responsible way, which helped lead to our crash and so much suffering, imagine what groups that we have no real knowledge of who the characters are, what their biases, where they come from, were they political appointees, were they lobbyists? Uh, There just needs to be far more transparency, and hopefully people will be able to do that. Thank you very much for your book, The Globalization Paradox, Democracy and the Future of the World Economy. I appreciate very much you being with us today.
0: Uh, Thank you. Nice to talk to you.
1: Professor Danny Roddick, uh, he is the uh, Rafik Hariri Professor of International Political Economy, John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to sharing more on our next program.
0: i was filled with despair all my dreams turned to ashes and gold as i looked at my life it was barren